I think there might be a fun story in the whole like uh, trying to find uh, an alternative to Twitter. I don't know if you heard about that story about Will Wheaton. Yes. So I'm going to quickly recap for this for anyone who didn't hear it. So Will Wheaton, who's the, the Pratt from Star Trek, he's a very active lib online. And he went to Mastodon to try to like have a more like a, a more chill social media presence. But then he got Bofed. What? What's that? I feel like I know that, but I don't remember it. Boba Fetted? You, you've heard of Bofa. <laughs> What's, yeah, acronyms don't mean anything to me. Can, I fucking hate acronyms. What is Bofa? Bofa these nuts! Wow. That's what it is. <laughs> Finally, I got to say it. Hello. Welcome to Hacks. It's a tech podcast. My name is Simon. As always, I'm joined by Rob. Hi, I'm Rob. And Morale. Hello. And Rosemary. Hey. We just had a discussion off mic about whether it's awkward to just open the show and say who we are without saying, you know, anything else about who we are. So we're going to have to come up with a solution to this problem later because it's not like we can really expect anyone to know who we are or what our credentials are, why you should give a shit what we say. But uh, I, I hope that even if you don't accept that we're people who are qualified to speak, you will enjoy the show anyway. On that note, a couple of quick show notes. Uh, we are now accepting taking in feedback now that I, I've gathered we have a little bit of a listener base, which is exciting. Uh, so questions, comments, complaints, uh, send them all to admin at hacks.fm. Uh, we will, if we get enough feedback, we may eventually do like a little bit of a mailbag segment. I would love in the more distant future to eventually set up a voicemail box. I think that would be super fun. But that's something we can worry about a little later. Simon, I just wanted to say that we are qualified to do this podcast because we're citizens of Earth. Fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. I mean, this raises a more important, I think, question of, you know, what is a human? Okay. No, you don't get to say what <laughs> is a human. I'm just I want to hear more. That. I'm going to cut that shit off right now. We'll do your transhumanism episode. At I'm some not point, a transhumanist, post humanist. Oh my god. Big difference. That's the same thing. No. <laughs> that hurts me. Okay. So the general theme this week is tech and law enforcement and the sort of intertwining thereof. So there are two sort of uh technologies or like areas of technology that I want to talk about that are kind of linked. And then I wanted to hop over to a a related but still a pretty different subject that we'll talk about nearer to the end. So the first of these I wanted to talk about is a technology called ShotSpotter. And this came on our radar because it's being floated for use in the Toronto area, but it's already in use in places all over the world from South Africa to a bunch of American cities. And I believe that the Toronto police chief, Mark Saunders, is having a some sort of formal presentation to pitch the use of ShotSpotter here in Toronto in September. So this is uh, like last week. All these stories are things we're going to be sort of following along with and probably providing updates on in the future when we next return to this topic. The basic thing with ShotSpotter is it's essentially a surveillance system, and I'm going to use their description for what it does from their website. Our outdoor acoustic sensors identify and timestamp impulsive noises. The system triangulates the location of the sound source to within 25 meters 
and runs features of the sound through machine classification. Our incident review center, human experts, confirm the machine classification and publish an alert, typically within 30 to 45 seconds of the trigger pull. So they say that essentially this system of sensors, this technology of theirs, quickly and efficiently filters out specifically what uh, you know, when they hear when it hears a gunshot and not any other sound, and then reports you know precisely where it came from within a very short time span, so they can have a rapid response. That seems pretty innocuous, doesn't it? Anyone want to come in on anything that they hear that maybe they're concerned about? So acoustic sensors means microphones. Yep. Um, audio triangulation means we're listening all the time. Um, impulsive noises means a loud noise. So really what, what they're listening for is any sound that is over a certain uh, volume threshold. The microphones get activated and the human listeners back at HQ can determine whether or not it's a gunshot. But really the mics are just open during that time. I'm concerned with that. Merle, are you concerned with that? Yeah, of course. I mean, the idea that, oh my goodness, where to even start? Uh, I think, <laughs> I mean, the low-hanging fruit is that you have, essentially, you're just listening to to the city, which is, and, and um, it's a third-party vendor who's doing this on behalf of a police department or whatever, which is like beyond messed up, I think, because all of that becomes weaponizable data, Right. Um, and then who are you going to use it against? I think so. I mean, there's so much to unpack here, but Rosemary, you have something to say. So. Yeah. If anyone wants to study the data they collect, they have to pay for that. So mm. uh, it's not public domain. It seems like a problem to me. Yeah. I mean, this raises a, I mean, what you're talking about kind of raises a very, um, I think, important issue with a lot of these types of techno solutions um, that attempt to kind of uh, render the city safe or navigable or whatever um, using technology, which is that often the data collected is completely black boxed. Um, you don't have access to it. If you do, it's really expensive. Um, so it'd be something like, for instance, if you buy like a, a consulting report, right, you're paying many thousands of dollars. So I don't know how much this costs, but it's there, there's a commodification of data um, and of space really that occurs that I think you can't that that is so easy to miss if you're just looking at it from a oh well you know if you look at these anecdotal events that indicate that there's a, a problem with gun violence well here's a solution it's not like fixing the legislation or anything or access to guns or fixing the social conditions right yeah. maybe that create the crime no it's just it's 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 these band aid solutions that are complete shit yeah I would say that the the incident in Toronto that caused uh, Mark Saunders the police chief to announced that they're considering using this technology was um, from what I was told because it happened in there were two of them and it was a tit for tat thing between rival um, uh, neighborhoods people got killed which young guys young black guys and uh, they have gangs so I don't see how shot spotter yeah Toronto police should actually look at providing services to these areas as a way to prevent the kids from joining gangs so the, the city council vote on ShotSpotter um, was a $4 million procurement, which I think is almost entirely going to the company. So $4 million buys a lot of community outreach programs. Yeah. Before I get to the sort of the, the ethics of this, I, I did want to mention there's a time story called Shots Fired, which is all about ShotSpotter. Mm -hmm. And um, it sort of, they talked to various police departments who were using it in um, the NYPD and in Milwaukee and places like that. But they also happened to stop by uh, Troy, New York, where uh, they used it and then stopped using it. And I'm just going to read from this uh, a bit. 
Another police chief says, I don't understand why any urban center wouldn't want ShotSpotter. Then it goes on to say, one answer is in Troy, New York, a former industrial hub outside of Albany. Police chief John Tedesco says the system, which the city adopted in 2008, so this has been kicking around for quite a while, gave false shots or failed to report actual gunfire up to one third of the time. Quote, we weren't finding physical evidence. It would sometimes take officers to the wrong location. He says ShotSpotter tried to rectify the problems, but that, quote, officers lost confidence in it and the department ended its contract in 2012. So on top of the ethical concerns, I just wanted to throw in there that it may not even actually be that effective, despite all the wizardry. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously their website is a sales website, doesn't have a lot of technical information, but even their sales copy raises a lot of questions for me. Like um, <laughs> the the best case scenario that they put up there is pinpointing gunfire to a 25 meter radius. So if you're not from Canada, 25 meter radius, 50 meter diameter is like a city block. Um, so that's as good as saying somewhere in this city block, um, a loud noise occurred, which is not really that helpful to law enforcement, maybe. And I can definitely foresee a lot of false positives. Um, The other part of their marketing copy talks about machine learning, which is my favorite thing, uh, because it means nothing, as we'll probably get into (laughs) later. It it means that the sound went through a computer. When you say machine learning in a marketing context, what, what does that mean? It means... It's the same thing as saying we use math to find the answer, right? It's a pretty broad um, statement. In fact, there was, uh, we'll talk about a company called Predpol later, but there was a study done on Predpol's predictive policing algorithm um, that basically found that the algorithm boiled down to if there was a report of crime in a neighborhood, Predpol would send more officers to that neighborhood later on. So like pretty simple, not that sophisticated and probably uh, created a lot of problems with over-policing as well. So just because we use um, equations to influence policy decisions doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurate or a desirable outcome. Yeah, I think just to, to hop in on that, you know, this um, this notion that math is the solution to everything, right? And this is something that I think all of us have had exposure to. Um, so for our listeners, you can get a little bit about who we are now because I'm going to say something. But, um, you know, three of us used to work um, for, you know, in the blockchain or, or cryptocurrency world for a little bit together. Um, and you'd hear this all the time. People be like, but of course the smart contract's going to work. It's supported by the power of mathematics. And I remember talking to um, some some folks who kind of called that into question and said, yeah, but like, so is everything else, right? That in itself is not enough to, to justify kind of decisions about things and people. And also the idea that, um, you know, algorithms reinforce bias um without because essentially you're coding that you're coding decisions into a machine right it's not something that's just innate and has an ability to make judgments beyond the way that it's scripted yeah humans create the algorithms so all the human biases all the economic and political pressures on a human making decisions get filtered into those algorithms the math whatever you want to talk about the math sure math itself perhaps is neutral, right? It's just a set of relationships. But um, when you apply them, those relationships to a problem, that's when the bias seeps in. It's like um, asking someone, how did you build this house? What style did you use? I used a hammer, right? It doesn't really tell you, you know, what, what the technique was. I want to go back to um, the the website and also just bring up the fact that the the kind of acoustic aspect. Um, I really wonder what that does for like um, from the legal standpoint, right? I mean, the idea that you're 
innocent until proven guilty, supposedly, um, I, I feel like would go out the window if someone just can listen in and essentially use audio as conjecture um, or to kind of form the basis of an argument in a court of law. Yeah, I totally agree. And I have a, a lot of questions about the auditability of this data, right? You're sitting in a courtroom and someone from ShotSpotter comes in and said, the algorithm said that there was a gunshot in, in this city block and you were there at the time. Well, who's going to argue with the algorithm? How do you, right? Are they going to bring up the the raw tabular data about, you know, acoustics from all the microphones in that area? Probably not, right? Like when people hear machine learning, when they hear um, <laughs> math, when they hear... Um, Machines. <laughs> implosive uh, audio cadence, like they don't question it, right? In a court setting, then you also have to get into them demonstrating why their technology does what it, what they're saying it does, which is identifying an impulsive sound as a, a gunshot, right? Right. And in Toronto, that could, how do you prove that's not just a, a streetcar sparking or something, which I often mistake for gunshots myself. Now, Rob, you sort of anticipated our next, uh, our next topic and blew my narrative a bit. So thanks. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's I fine. Do. It's fine. Um, blew yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Hate it when that happens. Uh, PredPol is the the other sort of police technology I wanted to discuss today. I mean, aside from its hilarious name, uh, the actual concept is not so funny. In the Foothill Division, north of downtown Los Angeles, police are patrolling the largely working class neighborhoods with specially marked maps. The small red squares are hot spots where computers project property crimes are most likely. It's called predictive policing, a program which Captain Sean Malinowski says puts officers on the scene before crimes occur. 65% of our crimes are burglary, grand theft auto, and burglary from motor vehicle. And that's what these boxes represent. That's a pretty small box, 500 feet by 500 feet. Yes, it, it, it is a small area. These crime prediction boxes come from the same kind of mathematical calculation used to predict earthquakes and aftershocks. By analyzing the times, dates, and places of recent crimes, computers project hotspots for burglaries, break-ins, and car thefts. As Rob alluded to, it is a, it's a, it's a pre-crime technology. They're hoping to uh, predictively counteract future crime, essentially by, as far as I can tell, just sort of keeping a database of, of crimes that have occurred and then allocating existing uh, police resources to those places in an effort to, to proactively uh, prevent crime. I I just wanted to read this quote that's on the front page of their website because I think it's so illustrative of everything that's going on. It's from uh, LA Police Chief Charlie Beck. Quote, I'm not going to get more money. I'm not going to get more cops. I have to be better at using what I have. And that's what predictive policing is about. If this old street cop can change the way that he thinks about this stuff, then I know my officers can do the same. Which, what the okay. fuck? <laughs> A lot is going on here, but I just, I want to start with the idea of change, like the idea that PredPol is revolutionizing the way cops think and the way police departments think about crime, which like, I think we can call that ridiculous on its face, right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting that we're seeing these technologies gain traction in this particular time when I know that sort of on the fringes, we have people discussing uh, you know, alternative forms of justice and even uh, thinking about ways to phase out policing entirely. Yeah. And there's plenty of discussion about that elsewhere. And maybe I'll throw some links into the uh, to the show description. 
What do you mean on the fringes? I mean like the it's it's not part <laughs> of the main Rosemary. discourse. <laughs> it's not like it's not, it's not like you're going to turn on you know CBC or NBC or whatever and hear people talking about. You're not going to hear Alex Vitale on some talk mm-hmm. show talking about the end of policing or whatever. Right. Um, you know, it's not it's not a mainstream discourse at all. Okay, because it's, it's yeah. a lame stream. Am I right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and yes, I just quoted Sarah Palin. Um, I think, but I, I think friend this of the show, <laughs> friend of the pod. One of the I, that's a good question, Simon, about um, kind of raising change. Like, what does change mean? I mean, I find it very shallow to kind of see these types of um, technologies being presented as solutions or options for you know people who just want to serve and protect. I'm not going to call into question whether most cops actually want to do that because I think that'll betray my politics. But um, what I do find really problematic is, okay, you want to you change? Why don't you change your fucking attitude? Why don't you yeah. start decolonizing yourself and thinking very critically and maybe shutting up and listening to people in your communities that you're serving about some of the biases that f- trickle into your everyday decisions? That might be really uncomfortable, um, but if you're not willing to do that kind of work, then frankly, take your bits and bites and shove them somewhere else. I don't know. Put them in, in your a fax utility machine. belt. Yeah, seriously. So following on from what I said before about the gang incident that happened in my neighborhood, that's exactly what Morale said is what about changing racial profiling, other types of police behaviors that alienate certain communities and, and then they respond by creating their own kind of private police entities. Yeah, I mean, I, I see these sorts of algorithmic policing tools as a way to make objective those biases that we deal with in policing and maintain the status quo. Like um, ShotSpotter, for instance, sure, it detects gunfire, but where is Toronto going to install all those microphones? In the neighborhoods that are believed to be high crime, dangerous ones. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, Ronces Vale. The main streets of Ronces Vale. Um, Get your croissant. <laughs> well, and it's the same thing with Predpool, right? Like, um, don't walk home alone at night in the Ronce. <laughs> might step on like some coffee beans. Yeah, some coffee beans and slip and fall. Someone from Orangeville. Um, that's, that's, yeah, just or, for the sake Pred of our, our listeners, that's the high baby carriage uh, uh, density neighborhood of, of Toronto. Of the yeah, moment. everyone who lives there or has lived there is a disgusting gentrifier. Yeah. <laughs> Or Predpol, right, is like, um, you know, a crime is reported in a neighborhood and all of a sudden more police officers show up in that neighborhood. So, like, where does that feedback loop start in the poor neighborhoods that are believed to be dangerous, right? And because we're using numbers to make all these decisions, it nullifies a lot of the arguments or attempts to nullify the arguments around um, more restorative forms of policing. One thing that I, I really find kind of captures what we're, we're discussing right now is if you actually look at the the, the website for ShotSpotter, the, like you scroll down, I'm on the mobile site. So if you go down like one thumb scroll, I guess, there's a little map and it says ShotSpotter. First of all, ShotSpotter, what a stupid name. ShotSpotter. Uh, do you prefer Predpol? <laughs> why do these, but like, why can't they come up with a good name? This is ShotSpotter sounds like shit for some reason. But ShotSpotter proactively addresses gun violence issues. And there's this map and the location of a presumed event is on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Um, 
And like we're talking about, you know, this notion of kind of, oh, well, we're just trying to kind of create this objective, rational understanding of space and, and how to kind of serve and protect on that is extremely problematic and, and visible even here because there's so much literature written on the fact, on the kind of politics of, of, of street naming, specifically with Martin Luther King, Junior Boulevards, and how they're often kind of negatively branded as, okay, well, this is a bad part of town, so that's where the name should go. Um, so these kind of racial events weave in through space, I think, in, in different ways, and that it's not like we're changing anything by by adding, you know, an algorithm or machine learning or anything. We're just intensifying it. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely coded. Like what Morel is looking at, I'm looking at this map right now. It's a fake image of a fake map from their website. But of course, they put the little shot spotter pin for shots fired right in the middle of MLK Jr. Boulevard. I'm really wary of making it seem like Canada's another world from the States because we're so interconnected. Yeah. But I don't think it's really deniable just based on the data that there's just there's a, an epidemic of fatal police violence against unarmed black people yes. that is occurring in the states that isn't happening to the same extent in Canada. And I mean, the notion that you're going to I mean, a, a system like PredPol and I think to another extent, a system like ShotSpotter will absolutely concentrate police resources on areas that have a higher density of uh, people of color and especially black people. And it's absurd to think that people are going to feel safer with with a heightened police presence, given what's happening there. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I, I think we're all in agreement here. But just to go back to, to Predpol, which also is a stupid name. The other issue is that, okay, so let's, we can recognize some of kind of the, the very apparent problems um, from kind of an ethical level. Um, but it also doesn't work well on a local level, right? Like what you were talking about, Simon, I kind of want to get back to that. If And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You read that little section indicating that there are kind of these problems that it's not just that it, it's not just that people just kind of want to use it and, and institute change, but also like, how does that actually operate on the ground with predictive policing? I'm going to literally read from their page how PredPol works on the website. And I think you'll be, I think you'll be surprised, delightfully surprised at how, just how sophisticated it is. PredPol uses a machine learning algorithm <laughs> to calculate its predictions. It. Historical event data sets are used to train the algorithm for each new city, in parentheses, ideally two to five years of data. It then updates the algorithm each day with new events as they are received from the department. This information comes from the agency's records management system, or RMS. PredPol uses only three data points, crime type, crime location, and crime date and time to create its predictions. No personally identifiable, that's their emphasis, by the way, on only, um, no personally identifiable information is ever used. No demographic, ethnic, or socioeconomic information is ever used. This eliminates the possibility for privacy or civil rights violations seen with other <laughs> intelligence-led policing models. Woo! So there's no problem, guys. <laughs> that's all, folks. Justice has been served. Yeah. <laughs> shit, I'm going to just erase machine. all that shit we just recorded because it was obviously bunk. <laughs> That's unreal. Obviously, they don't believe that their um, product erases all biases in policing. Of course, they do. What do you <laughs> no, think? No, Rosemary no. Simon, do you th okay? Let's 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 take your reactions. <laughs> do Do I think that they believe their own stuff? Yeah. Uh, does it matter? No. I mean, well, what do you think? You just read that out loud, and you had some some uh, comments. Can you unpack them? What do you? What are your? What's your take? It's obviously incredibly simplistic to say that just because they don't record these things that there isn't some institutional memory 
about, you know, what you can expect from certain areas, certain 150 by 150 meter squares that each of these incidents has a, has a record of on a Google map. I mean, this notion that just because it isn't hard coded in their, their RMS or whatever, that, that suddenly there's no bias, I think is, uh, hilariously either naive or cynical. And again, which, which one it is, I don't think matters. I mean, it's also, it's just silly because data works in aggregate. So the personal information isn't actually relevant. So right. it's just a silly a bit of PR spin, basically. Right. Yeah. It's the exact same thing we went through last week where like, oh, we can, they can claim truthfully that they don't record those things, but it does not mean that it's not doing exactly what you're worried it is. Doesn't, does the fact that, um, you know, that you're arguing that like the data works in aggregate, does that somehow flatten difference? Like for that small data in a problematic way. Well, I, I mean, I think the problem is that you know their their three point machine learning algorithm elides the inputs to the algorithm, right? Like wh- which locations of the city are getting more reports of crime, right? Probably not in Roncesvalles. It's infuriating to me that they tie their system up in this tidy little package and deliver it to politicians who are always looking for ways to work smarter, not harder. And, you know, we just accept it um, because it's machines, because it's a new thing, because it doesn't require taking police officers off the street and cutting the budgets. Can we also talk about how you train? And it's, there was a line about training the algorithm. It's not a fucking dog, first of all. <laughs> well, and also, <laughs> we're going to, like, I don't know if, like, I'm not going to cite anyone specifically, but, like, I don't know how that makes me feel better to know that, like, a bunch of cops are training are, are, are using some vendor and then these people who are like randos essentially are just training an algorithm like that doesn't make me trust your system at all well well it's again it's a it's it's a silly it's a claim it's it's not very meaningful to say that it just means that the, yeah. the, the algorithm collects data my concern is more that like the person who's coding that i'd like to know who that is like you want to talk about expertise well i think that's important is it just some like a bunch of devs yeah. No offense well, to devs. No offense. They're scum. I I do think that <laughs> says the dev. <laughs> it's kind of wild when you think about how, you know, machine learning algorithms are trained, and I'll be really brief. Um, but it's kind of interesting and germane in this case. So they're, you know, maybe they're using a neural network. I'll take that as an example. And this is a very simplified explanation. So don't do not write don't admin me. at hacks.fm <laughs> with a better explanation. We will not read it on the air. No, we might. We might, um, actually. We might. Yes, we might. We might. Yep. If you do, please CC Rob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, damn it. Second week in a row, I've no, been doxxed by a host of this program. Rob Smurf. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so in brief, the way that you would train an algorithm like this is you give it all the data about, um, you know, maybe 10 years of crimes that have happened across the city of Toronto. And I'll use very simplified data for this. So if you're thinking of like a math equation, right? So all the data would be like um, one plus two minus three equals zero, right? So you have the input numbers, the operations on those numbers, which is the algorithm and the answer, right? So you have that to start with. Um, To train the algorithm, you take away all the the um, mathematical symbols, all the pluses and the minuses and the multiplications and the divisions. And you just say, okay, computer, you have these input numbers and the output number. What is the equation that goes from one to the other? And you give it like 10 years of data, like millions of, of pieces of data. And it gets pretty good at predicting what symbols should go in to transfer the inputs into the outputs. 
So now your algorithm is trained and you're ready to actually use it in the real world. And when you get in the real world, you don't get the answer, right? You're trying to find out the answer. And you also don't have the algorithm because that came from the machine. So now you just have the input numbers. Rosemary, Simon, Morel, if I gave you the input numbers, three, two, and one, can anyone tell me what the algorithm is and also what the answer is? No, you can't. There are, still, there are too many unknowns, right? Most dumb computers, this laptop that we're recording on, probably wouldn't be able to figure it out, right? And then, of course, you add in all the extenuating social human circumstances, and the thing gets pretty muddy, right? Like, you, it's, it's really difficult to make those accurate predictions. And the ways the successful machine learning practitioners get really successful, get really accurate by taking the algorithms that the computer spits out. Again, I'm simplifying. Do not email us about this and essentially cooking the books, right? I know that crime is more likely to happen over here certain types of the day. So let's just add in a couple little um, tweaks for those specific circumstances that, that we humans know about, right? So now you're introducing more human intervention into the algorithm. And just really quickly, not to mention that the data set itself, because it's historical, will have particular crimes that, so I'm sure that stuff that was contestable would not be represented. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. 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 The, I mean, the, the point that I personally really wanted to just drive home um, to kind of wrap up this, this section of the, of the pod is that what struck me about both of these, quote, solutions and, their suppo- and how supposedly revolutionary they are is they're really just like technocratic yep. reifications of like existing yep. ideas about what policing is and how it should be done and why it should be done. Yeah. They don't change anything. Yes. Right. They're they're just they're just um, yeah, um, tech supplements that may add something. <laughs> they're also PR exercises. I think half of what we're talking about in this in this podcast is, yeah. Are, yeah. Are, is about the PR and spin of, of of the new technocratic era that we live in. Also, quick plug for your tech supplements: email admin <laughs> at hacks dot. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get into the brain pill racket. I can't wait. That's where the real money is. Do we have any urgent points to make before we move on to our final subject of the pod? Uh, I like that explanation of machine learning, Rob. Thanks. Yeah, it wasn't too boring. (laughs) That's what I strive for. (laughs) But it was slightly boring. I'm going to add some whimsical music and lay it underneath in case uh, during editing I decide that it's boring. Can we make requests for songs to use? (laughs) No. All right. So last subject, and it's kind of a, a big one. I've got a lot of stuff here, so bear with me. So... Our final story of the episode is about the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Department in the in the states, better known as ICE. Ever since January, there's been this story developing about their collaboration with Microsoft, a little tech firm you might have heard of. That was when they announced that they had uh, a partnership with ICE. Uh, they were, quote, proud to support the agency. And, of course, this uh, created some controversy because ICE is actually – I mean, they they are working with Microsoft, but they're really better known for doing things like putting kids in cages and separating families and all that good stuff everyone likes. In June, mid-June, there was a petition from a set of Microsoft employees asking them to not do that anymore, please. As you might guess, that didn't work. So more stuff has been happening. And probably the most interesting sort of set of events has to do with uh, the dev community and how they've responded or not responded. A few days after the letter that I mentioned, a set of coders 
And this is from a story from Gizmodo said to Microsoft, cut ties with ICE or we'll take our projects elsewhere. Uh, Let me just read directly from the story. More than five dozen GitHub contributors on Thursday signed a letter threatening to abandon the website unless Microsoft canceled its immigration and customs enforcement uh, contract. Uh, So GitHub, of course, was purchased by Microsoft some time ago. Can you explain what uh, GitHub is for those listeners who maybe aren't aware briefly? I think Rob should probably do that. GitHub in a a nutshell. In a nutshell. um, So GitHub is a place, by far the most popular place, where people who work on open source software, that's free software that anyone can download and use in their own projects, modify, create new versions of, contribute to. Um, GitHub is the most popular place where that is hosted online. So if I give you a GitHub link to a project that I've worked on, you can go there, see all the source code and contribute to it. Um, it is right. the, the website that is the calling card uh, for most many people who develop software. So I wanted to take a second to read directly from the statement that these 60 or so uh, GitHub developers sent out. Earlier this year, Microsoft proudly announced that it was worked with ICE to, quote, deliver such services as cloud-based identity and access in order to help employees make more informed decisions faster and utilize deep learning capabilities to accelerate facial recognition and identification. Now, here's where we get into the ideological bit. As members of the open source community and free software movement who embrace values of freedom, liberty, openness, sharing, mutual aid, and general human kindness, we are horrified by and strongly object to the Trump administration's policies of detainment, denaturalization, deportation, and family separation as carried out by ICE. So I wanted to get that out of the way because that leads us to the the final thing that I wanted to introduce before we actually talk about this stuff which is uh, the most recent thing that happened that I wanted to mention, which is there was a major developer behind um, a software called Lerna. And this is a major open source project that a lot of companies that work with ICE had access to. And this developer decided he would revoke their access. And he released a statement about it. And then less than 24 hours later, he that this developer in question got booted from the project and access was restored. So this is where we find the real ideological schism that I want to talk about. Quote, Lerna has defected from the open source community and should be shunned by anyone who values the health of that community. This is from a blog post that uh, that came out afterwards. The Lerna project's choice is, moreover, destructive of, the, of one of the deep norms that keeps the open source community functional, keeping politics separated from our work. So on one hand, we have the claim that the open source community is uh, opposed to everything that the Trump administration and their agency is all about. And on the other hand, we've got this other person saying, no, the open source community is about remaining politically neutral at all times. So which is it? Simon, can you just say a little bit more about what Learnit does? I'm just curious. Can I jump in and offer one? It is a tool for developers. Um, I haven't used it, so this may be wrong, but in general. Um, So you have a lot of code in your code base. You're creating a project. You're using a project from here, 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 here. Uh, Lerna helps you sort of bundle those projects together so that they're all nicely ordered for the project that you are working on. Okay. You're using a bunch of other people's code and it needs to be organized for you to use it effectively. Okay, thanks for that. I should quickly mention, sorry, that the... um, the list of banned firms who, who had their access restored less than 24 hours later, in case you ever want to get a really rapid response to your political ac- activity, 
and want to know who you should target that you'll get shut down so quickly. Uh, that included Amazon, Northeastern University, Motorola, Dell, uh, UPS, and John Hopkins University. John Hopkins mm. and yep. Northeastern. Yep. Big, big fans of ICE. Um, I'm shocked about the, the institutions. So this is actually kind of a, a wild story. Um, first of all, I want to say personally, I am very proud of this creator for um, attempting to make this change. I think that, um, you know, the as has been famously said, software is eating the world, right? There's software in every single device that we use. We interact with software constantly throughout our lives to treat it as if it's just water. It comes out of a tap. We use it and then it goes away is... is uh, ridiculous. It's created by humans who have political beliefs, and we should think about um, how that software is created, uh, what is ethical about it, what are the limitations in terms of how it should be used. That said, this creator modified the license for his software in a way that isn't not really valid. So um, when you think about open source software, anyone can um, download it, modify it, contribute to it, etc., etc., um, it also means that if I use Lerna in my project, I create a tool that is then used by someone else, that is then used by someone else, that eventually, as these projects sort of compound, everyone is building software on top of everyone else's software. Um, one of those projects sort of at the top of the pyramid gets to Microsoft and gets embedded in a Microsoft project. Well, it would be like impossible for Microsoft to follow the terms of the one project at the very bottom of that pyramid that the developer at Microsoft may not even be aware of, right? So these sorts of license changes, while they're laudable, um, well, I totally agree in spirit with them are completely unenforceable. And I think, you know, there were a lot of people um, on the GitHub issue where this change was announced talking about how, how petty it is to introduce politics into your open source software, which is I hope I have another 15 minutes of this podcast to rant about that later. But um, <laughs> we're making these very good points that like from a legal standpoint, you can't exclude a particular company from using your software. It, it's just not how open source works because of how. Yeah, if I, I can just is. quote Vitalik Buterin, who's in an interview um, that uh, I was involved in, with doing with him. And he said, you can't just make your software so that nice, fluffy people get to use it. It's just not possible. Hmm. Yeah, But I mean... Doesn't this just mean that, I guess I always see the open source movement in the way that I interpret it, which admittedly is partial, in essentially kind of uh, a stark contrast to capitalism and mm -hmm. everything that kind of, the way that we operate today, including the state, right? And like including um, kind of all these legal ramifications. And it's just sad because, I mean, I don't, how do you, it, it feels almost futile, doesn't it? If you're going to keep pushing for this um, liberatory politics or kind of a digital recombining um, or even kind of open source, free open source software, what do you do? Well, you can license your software under a completely non-commercial license that yeah. cannot be used in commercial software. I mean, then you run the risk of no one ever using it, again, because of those compounding licenses, right? So it's kind of a catch-22, right? And, and you know, if we can get to the politics of open source, man, this is going to bore some of our listeners so much. Oh, wow. Unsubscribe from this podcast if this bores you because you're just going to get more of it in upcoming episodes. <laughs> um, when software first started to be created, there was a recognition that, you know, if we put this kind of stuff solely in the hands of, 
you know, companies, corporations, whatever you want to call it, that are going to keep uh, all of the software locked down so that no one can learn from it, no one can use it to build even grander projects, you know, pretty soon we're going to run into a problem, right? Because everyone's creating their own stuff. And it means that there isn't a lot of visibility into what other people are doing. And the software will be bad as a result, right? Because there's no like auditing and um, enrichment from the community. Um, so that's where the open source movement comes from, right? This movement that it believes that software should as a fundamental as the primary position be free for anyone to use, modify, make better. It's a political movement. And it has now resulted in the wonderful, incredible computerized world that we have today, which of course has no problems. We have never done an episode of this podcast before. So all of our listeners know that there's nothing wrong with technology. But the the um, the fundamental idea that we can all learn from each other and all build off of each other's work is, I think, really valid. And it's resulted in an incredible flourishing of the technology that we interact with. So, you know, the, the comments on this GitHub issue where someone was trying to le- relicense their software, again, in an invalid way, saying, one, I have one of them right here, adding your political beliefs to your licensing is petty. The fact that, that there the is an open source license on this project is political. And there's, there's a real cognitive dissonance there that I think is incredibly problematic from practitioners in this industry, people who are creating software, who purport to believe in open source, who don't consider themselves political. And that's mystifying. Oh, sorry. Hang on a sec. It's a jet overhead. Um, so are you saying, Rob, that it is petty to add your political beliefs? No, sorry. I was I was quoting uh, a wrong person. On a the wrong internet. person. Okay. There is something to <laughs> Again, that. Again, don't email us. I think that this person was using an internet means to try and solve a, a bigger problem. And, and I think that those little internet petitions and this type of movements, um, they are a bit petty. I have to say, I think that's actually true. I mean, I would like to say personally, like, I, I think boycotts in general are like uh, an, an ineffectual liberal means of combating, you know, monolithic evil. I believe that almost universally. I, di- I did find the the response to this, the swiftness of it quite striking, the fact that he was ejected so quickly. I just personally, the, the thing that I find so striking about, and I think what connects both of these, uh, all, all these major stories we're talking about today is this notion of oh we're we're using technology in a way that is neutral and therefore not political like this idea that these decisions these uh, these technologies exist in some uh, some heightened realm beyond politics and also just the fetishism of neutrality in general yeah. just absolutely drives me up the wall whenever you have a conversation with anyone about politics and they're like. Well, the extremes just really bother me. I like to stay somewhere in the middle because I feel like it's more logical. At some point, we need to talk about the um, more broadly, like the tendency of engineers and by extension, like devs to be reactionary. That's a whole subject in itself. Yeah. Um, but that's what I found striking as in terms of connective tissue between these stories. Ralph? Yeah, I mean, the same for me. Um, I think this whole kind of emphasis on um, technology is both a panacea and also, yeah, um, politically neutral is complete bullshit and if you buy into that and you haven't set if especially if you're uh, creating if you're if you're building in any sense if you're a developer sit the fuck down <laughs> reflect a little bit and realize that like of course it's political everything is always already political and if you haven't figured that out in 2018 then you're part of the problem and you're going <laughs> to hell sorry <laughs> well it's cowardly to say like Oh, it's, you know, like, you shouldn't be putting your politics into your work. Well, everything you do is politicized. And we're not living in a world 
that where that's not apparent. And you, if you walk around completely ignorant of that, then you're kind of a piece <laughs> of shit, in my opinion. I, I think one of the issues, especially when it comes to open source software, is that these creators are thinking about the consumption of uh, their work as the political act and not necessarily the mm -hmm. creation, right? Um, creating something in an open source world is political. I mean, hopefully you're ascribing to open source values that I was just talking about. Um, but they they push it off to the consumer. You know, don't use my software if you're evil, right? But that but doesn't really work. That's, that's so... Oh, that's so I don't agree with it. No, I know. I'm not saying I agree with it. But the idea that, you know, mm -hmm. I just created this thing and then you... This biological Zycon weapon. B. Yeah, this biological I just created Cyclone B, realize. but yeah. Not yeah. my fault if Nazis use it. Well, you know... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, I think I think there's a lot of that going on and I definitely think we should spend more time um thinking about that, but I'm so tired of hearing people in in the industry going on about how they're just well, we're just trying to make things better without taking a moment and thinking about how you're actually you could be making things worse as well. Um it's not to say that you can't use technology for good, but you have to be mindful of of the implications all around. Yeah, I mean, it's good and bad, right? Like the people who originally came up with the algorithms on which PredPol is based, you know, those algorithms could probably just as well be used in, you know, finding cancer treatments, right? So, I mean, it's not, I think creators have to think about, you know, whether whether and how their creations can be used for good or evil. Yeah. Right, it's both. And and owning up to the, the failures. It's okay to fix a problem. Mm -hmm. But you have to acknowledge that it's a problem. Yeah. I feel like this topic has led to, like, touch on a dozen other topics that we're going to have to get to in future episodes. I mean, facial recognition oh, and yeah. the, the what they're trying to do with that and whether or not it even works and all this other stuff. Uh, the, the answer is that it does, I guess, if, unless you're a juggalo. But <laughs> we'll get there later. I mean, I would love to spend an episode on that. I would love to spend an, an episode on the reactionary tendencies of devs and engineers. But we do have to wrap up this episode any any sort of final burning comments before we wrap this one up i mean i just want to say that even though i i rant a lot about the problems with technology i still love the opportunities that it makes possible so it's not that i'm anti don't at me because you think i'm like a luddite even though in practice maybe i am we can be critical but yeah. thoughtful too i guess yeah i mean tech technology has the potential to be a, a huge equalizing force in society. It also has the potential to lead to the, the hell world in which we live now. Um, and it's through the inattention of society toward technology that led us down this path, right? And so I think if I can speak for all of us, part of the point of this podcast is to draw more attention, critical attention to how we're using technology within society and our politics. All right. Simon, That's what's a, your hot take? I, I, I've given all the hot takes I have for one day. But if you have a hot take, please, and if you want to complain about Rob, do you email us admin at hacks.fm. Uh, we'll be, over time, giving you other ways to reach out, to speak to us, to give us your reasoned opinion, or to start a flame war. Either is fine. All right. I guess that's about it. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back in a week's time with maybe a lighter subject, but maybe not. Maybe we'll just keep plumbing the darkness. Uh, we haven't really decided or yet. Juggalos. Uh, <laughs> or maybe we'll just do it. We'll do an all Juggalo special. Thanks, All right, Simon. thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone. Cops, central organization of police specialists. Fighting crime in a future time. Protecting Empire City from Big Boss and his gang of crooks. 